before us the word of God. We know as we read it, you're speaking to us. The voice here is not the voice of a man, but the really voice of God, the word of God to come to us. So I pray that you would enable us to hear it, that it would work in us, this living word, and we would see the fruit of it, fruit of it in the context of our own lives and in our church. So please, I pray, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John 21, please. <clears throat> I'm actually going to read the whole chapter, but as you might imagine, we'll only take up a piece of it, but I want you to see all of it. So John, chapter 21, please. After this... Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. Uh, that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer, <clears throat> outer garment, for he was stripped for work. And threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of the boat, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although uh, there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so were the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I say to you, <clears throat> when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. 
the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, and that is what, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he wasn't to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. By the way, you're getting better at that. You're not looking at the screens anymore. You're just looking at me and you're saying it. So I trust you now have that one. So perhaps every time you read a passage, wherever you are, that comes to your mind and it strengthens uh, your faith in the scripture. This is Easter tide. We're thinking about the appearances of Jesus, these resurrection appearances. We know the, the, the value, the importance, the significance how essential it is that we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. You remember from Romans in chapter, chapter 10, confess, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord <clears throat> and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved for the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses as in, as, and is saved. Now remember we said those aren't two different things. It all goes together that you confess what's in your heart and you really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Thus, you know that everything that he said and everything that he did then is true and trustworthy and reliable. You can trust in him. Uh, and thus, that is our salvation. And we're justified, we're declared righteous in the sight of God. Not by what we do, but by faith in Jesus because of who he is and what he did. And so we see that. And, 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 and fortunate for us, the scripture makes it very clear that Jesus rose from the dead. You cannot read the New Testament and not know that it's saying to us that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We have the empty tomb. We have these appearances of Jesus. We have, we, we have the, the transformation of these apostles from cowards to martyrs. And as we read through the New Testament, <clears throat> we find that the foundation of their message is that Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, on that first sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, we, 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 we have it clear to us in, in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Acts. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held uh, by it. And then we read in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and of all that we are witnesses. And so that's the, the heart really, the foundation, the ground of the message Jesus hadn't been raised, there would be no message. If Jesus hadn't been raised, there would be no faith in him. So that's the significance of it. We must believe it, really. 
in our hearts. So as we've been reading these last couple of chapters of John's uh, gospel, we, we find the witness, his witness of the resurrection of Jesus, first to Mary Magdalene, you might remember on their first Easter morning, and then in that evening to the disciples of Jesus, uh, less Thomas, the next week uh, to Thomas. And here we have another one. Now, John says this is the, the third one. We might say it's the fourth one. He would say it's the third one because he's just counting the, 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 the um, uh, appearances to the disciples and sort of leaves Mary Magdalene, that personal one out, but to, to the ones, to the groups, he's counting and so this would be um, the third one the question is why why do we need another one why do we need this one uh, in fact if you read through uh, uh, John chapter 20 you get a sense that John's done I mean you have this wonderful declaration of Thomas saying of Jesus my Lord and my God that brings us to this 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 wonderful bookend where we have the opening verses of of the gospel of John in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now Thomas is saying that's true. My Lord and, and my God. And, and John even gives us a summary uh, in verses 30 and 31 of, of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, uh, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, I, I read that and I go, okay, good, we're done. But, but, but not quite. Not quite. There's something else that he wants to sort of, sort of pull out of, of this. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar of significant notes in our day. Uh, puts it like this, he says, he said, well, he, John is like a mystery writer, he says here. And, and, and you, you, the mystery's been solved, but, but there's just a little bit more, just a little epilogue, just a little bit at the end, a loose end or few, he has to tie up before he can really, really, really be done. He's kind of hit the climax of it, but, but there's just a little something else. And so that's the little something else. And as you know, since the Bible is the word of God, there is, there is no little something else. Everything is of great significance to us. James Boyce, um, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, uh, passed away, um, at least by my way of thinking, at a relatively young age uh, some years ago. But he understands these, this uh, chapter like this. He says, The key to understanding this chapter is to see it as a parallel to the first part of the Gospel of John, the first part of chapter 1. John 1, 1 through 14, is the prologue, that part that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it ends with, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, John 1, 1 through 14, is a prologue, in which the pre-incarnate activity of the Lord is summarized. Unless, in other words, we, we see Jesus before, see the second person of the Trinity before he comes to earth. These verses, John chapter 21, are an epilogue. Their emphasis is upon the post-resurrection ministry of the Lord, in which he now rules his church and directs its members in their Christian growth and service. In other words, here's Jesus resurrected. So the question is, well, what's going to happen now? How's Jesus going to lead us now that he's resurrected and in anticipation of his ascension? 
And here's how Boyce puts it. He said, it would be proper to call this last chapter a pageant. He says, it's history. The events and conversations really happened. But it's symbolic history by which the essential principles concerning Christ's rule over the church during the age are forcefully communicated. In other words, he says, what we can learn from this is how Jesus rules and reigns now. Real events really happened, but we can see in them a great truth about how Jesus governs uh, even now. Dick Lucas, this would be my last uh, quote of pastors. I always do this just so you know it's not my idea. There's other people that, at least I respect a great deal, uh, came to the same conclusions. And if I'm honest, led me to certain conclusions. Uh, But uh, Dick Lucas uh, is, uh, some of you may know him by searching the internet, uh, Anglican uh, in England in his 90s, still preaching. He's my model. Um, But uh, he says, this is the work of the church through Christ. What we have here, first 14 verses is, is, is the gathering, catching of the fish. Change of metaphor. The second part is the tending of the sheep. He says, that's what we do. Now, we'll only have a chance this morning to get to the catching of the fish, but uh, we'll talk sometime later about uh, the shepherding of the sheep. So you know the scene. I mean, the scene's pretty obvious. Um, The disciples of Jesus, uh, he said, go to Galilee. They went to Galilee. So they're around the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, Tiberias being right off there. And so here here they are. And Peter says, let's go fishing. Now, poor Peter gets a bum rap about this. Uh, If you you read through the history of of this passage and its interpretation, there are many who think Peter has kind of bailed out on Jesus, that he's going back to work, he's going back to his livelihood, going back to being a fisherman, because he doesn't really think any of this matters or it's really going to happen or any of that, which, of course, is idle speculation. We have really no reason to think that. Just there... Peter's a fisherman. Maybe he needed some money. Maybe he needed some food. Maybe he just liked to fish. Uh, and so he takes them, he and his friends, and they go, they go fishing. And so that's, that's all I think we should say here. Here they are, and they're fishing. Now, uh, they fish all night, catch nothing. There happens to be a guy on the shore. They can't really make out who, it, who he is. Doesn't seem to be unusual to see someone out there and not know who that person is. But then that person just sort of calls out to them. And we have children, which is a good translation. Or he could just be saying, hey, guys, kind of thing. Um, If he was a youth director, he'd say dudes. Uh, But he's not. Uh, And so children works fine. Uh, And he says, you catch any fish? Now, we can't catch this in English. But in Greek, uh, the, the sentence is posed in such a way that... He's expecting a negative answer. So it's not like he's curious. He doesn't know. He knows they haven't caught any fish. But he just kind of puts it out there. If you've got any fish, then they, they say no. And so Jesus says, well, put out your nets on the right side. Obviously, they had been on the wrong side before. Uh, so put your nets out on the right side. And so, so they do. And they catch fish. They catch a lot of fish, big fish. So many fish that fishermen count them. And they have 153. Now, I could take the next hour and a half and talk to you about, in the history of the interpretation of this passage, how people have understood 153 fish. Uh, let's just leave it that they were fishermen. They were impressed by the catch and counted them. And so they knew there were 153. And so we have some sense of authenticity, even of this passage. But... 
they catch a lot. That's the point. But their nets don't break. But it's at that moment that this person identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which everyone thinks is John, the author of this particular gospel, says, it's the Lord. And now, how do you know that? Did all of a sudden his vision get clearer? All of a sudden the fog raised and he saw, oh, that's Jesus. Perhaps most likely he said, uh, we've been here before. We recognize that guy who knows where all the fish are. And we read that earlier in our passage from Luke in chapter 5. You remember, I suppose, when we read that right before our confession time, uh, Similar kind of situation, not exactly the same. Uh, a couple of boats, Jesus got in one. He was with them on the boat. They went out, he was teaching. Uh, and he said, let's catch some fish. They said, we've been fishing, we haven't caught any. And again, these are expert fishermen. These are professional fishermen. Uh, this is what they do for a living. We haven't caught any. The sense is there's no fish out here. Jesus says, put out your nets. They did. And that occasion, they caught so many that the nets began to break. So many that they took them out of the nets and put them in the boats. And the boats began to sink. So it's this great scene of, 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 of lots of fish being caught in a, in a miraculous, really, kind of way for these disciples uh, since they had been fishing and they'd used their best knowledge, their best skills, their best experience and caught nothing. And all it took was Jesus saying, they're there, catch them. And and as we said, uh, Peter at this point, a little different than in the John 21 passage where Peter interestingly puts on his clothes to swim. uh, Another point that this is a true story you would expect he would take off clothes in order to swim or at least swim out as he was but put on clothes swam 100 yards or so to Jesus in this incident in Luke 5 he sees Jesus I mean he really sees Jesus and he's afraid He's afraid because he realizes he's a sinful man and he's in the presence of this one who can do this, this one who is holy. And so he says, I'm I'm out of here. I need to leave. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Because that's the very beginning. That's the calling. And he says, I'm going to call you and I'm going to make you fishers of men. You you have to believe that every time Peter saw a fish after that, he said, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it, that's, that's, that, that's, that's my calling. But Jesus, you see, was, was in the boat with them. He was right there. On the second instant in, in John 21, Jesus wasn't in the boat with them. They didn't even know Jesus was there. They, they, they didn't even know he was watching. They didn't even know he cared. He was on the shore, this guy. They didn't know he was. But even from there, even out of sight, out of mind, if you will, Jesus was still directing their lives. He was still directing the catch. Peter, of all people, would know this. Wouldn't be many days that Peter would be standing before a group of people on the day of Pentecost, having been filled with the Holy Spirit and to preach, and 3,000 fish were caught. Oh, yes. Fishers of men. 3,000 caught. In fact, you read through the book of Acts. This expression happens from time to time. 
that multitudes were being saved, that a large number of people were being saved. It's the same word that we find in this passage in Luke 5, a great number of fish, a great number. And so it gets played out and played out and played out. And here we have, you see, in this uh, John 21, the, the, the answer to the question, what's going to happen now? Well, Jesus will still be directing. Jesus will still be ruling and reigning. He won't be in the boat. We won't see him. We won't know that he's doing it necessarily in the sense that, oh yeah, we see him and we hear him. But, but, but he still is. He's still the one who reveals himself to be. He's still the one who reveals himself as the Lord of the catch. That we're utterly dependent upon him. Utterly dependent upon him. That is to say, there's no catch without Jesus. No matter how good the disciples were, they're the best fishermen around, I suppose. They could catch nothing on their own. But they, they, they needed, you see, uh, the Lord. And, and, and as those came after the disciples, the, the word would continue to spread and fish would continue to be caught, if you will. People would still be uh, saved. You would see it in the book of Acts, even as the people scattered and, and, and the disciples at one point stayed in, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and the others scattered. And when they scattered, what happened? The word of God spread. It, it spread. And what happened? People believed in large numbers were continuing to come. You see, that's, that's how this spreads. Uh, it spreads through the likes of us, through relationships and families, from parents to children, from children to parents, siblings. I must say, I, I'm often amazed at how many testimonies I hear about a sibling leading another sibling to faith in Christ. It's amazing to me how many times I hear a testimony. I heard one just the other day. I said, how did you come to faith? Well, my brother went off to school. And when he went off to school, he got involved in this ministry. And he came to know Christ. And so he came home for Thanksgiving break and shared Christ with me. And I came to faith. It's just amazing how many times that kind of thing happens among siblings, among classmates, coworkers, neighbors, friendships. People are sent into areas where they're not known by anybody, but take the gospel of the Lord there. We see that it, it, it spreads, this fish keep coming, just as, as Jesus said. And we have to believe he's orchestrating all of this because the very point is we can't do this on our own. We're utterly and completely dependent upon him. And so when the first word comes to these disciples of Jesus, that they're to make disciples of all nations, to go into all the world, we realize that on the one hand, that's particular to them, but it, it spreads to us as well. In fact, Peter would understand it like this in First Peter, in chapter 3, verse 13. He writes, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, Peter says, here's what's going to happen. In the course of your life, 
difficult things will arise. And when difficult things arise, even persecution for doing good, people will look at you in amazement and say, how can you have faith? What is it? How can you have any hope at all? And Peter says, then you become a fisher person. (laughs) You become a fisher person of persons. Fishermen of men. He said, then you lay out your witness. Then you lay out the hope that you have. Oh, it isn't just like that. There can be times you initiate conversations. There can be times when you uh, when you go to people and, and start the conversation. Oh, that's good. But Peter says, it's going to go out and it's going to go out uh, from and through you. And we know that in the, in the, in the course of church life. As people join with us and they see the community, the fellowship, the love that we have for each other, the love that we have for the Lord. I can't tell you how many times people come to worship with us and when they leave, they say, I'm coming back. Even unbelievers, I'm coming back because you people seem to worship. You people seem to be sincere about this. You people, there's something about this community of people that that I want to come back to and figure out what that is. And you see, that's, it, it goes from us and through us. But always, it's the Lord who is the Lord of this work, the Lord of this catch. He, of course, is indispensable uh, to this. And we realize he must be. Because without him, we literally have no hope that anyone will really come to faith. We, we know the hearts of human beings, even from the, the very beginning in the book of Genesis, uh, early on, chapter 6, we read that the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. I mean, thoroughly. It's just the nature, the hearts of human beings against God, however that manifests itself. And Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful above all things. We can't trust them. They'll always lead us astray. Jesus said that men have loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He went on to say that if you sin, you're a slave to sin. You're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to rebellion against God. Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, you remember... In chapter 2, that says, he says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we used to live. Why? Because we're enslaved to the prince of the power of the air. We're enslaved to the evil one. We're enslaved to the ways of the world. We're enslaved to our own sinful condition. And only God, you see, can, can really break that. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, he says that we're, we have, our minds are darkened. And therefore, we live in the futility of our own thinking, of our own ways. And that never leads us to God. And so we're faced with that kind of situation. The question is, how can we have any hope at all? And the only hope we can have is that the Lord Jesus is the Lord over, over, over human beings and even their, their hearts. The Apostle Paul knew this in the context of his, of his own ministry. Uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 1, He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, God must be at work here. God must do the calling. God must change the heart. And unless he does, the gospel is just foolishness or a stumbling block. Paul knew that in his own ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified, uh, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my voice and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, it takes the power of God to change a heart. Paul knew that. And and so he says, says, if Jesus isn't in this, if he's not the Lord of the catch, there's no catch. And people will not come. They won't be converted. In fact, in his second letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, he puts it it like this. In talking about... um, witnessing of Christ. He said, who is sufficient for these things? Chapter 2, the end of verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 5. He says, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And so in chapter 4, he says it like this. He says that uh, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying God must work, else there is no catch. We're utterly dependent. We're utterly dependent upon him. And the good news is he's dependable. He knows what he's doing. He knows those who are his. And he will call them. And he will work. And they will believe. But how does he call them? He calls them through us. He calls them through our witness. He calls them through our testimony. And by the power of the Spirit at work in all of that, he calls, us, he calls them by his word. And the power of his word at work by his Spirit to change the hearts of people. That's what he does, you see. That's why Jesus said, well, let down your nets. Let down your nets. And there was a great catch because Jesus is Lord of all of that. They learned a lesson that Jesus taught them way back on the night that he was betrayed. Turn to John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, you might remember this particular occasion in the life of Jesus and his disciples. This is the night that he was betrayed. This is the night before he would be crucified and all of that. So he was with them and he was trying to tell them that which he knew they wouldn't really understand all the way. So much so that he said, I can't tell you everything right now. You need the Holy Spirit for that. He'll come and, and he'll teach you all these things. But but he was trying to describe for them 
that he's going to go away. He was trying to, des- to describe them that he was going to be crucified and that, that he would ascend. Now he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come back and get you and take you where I am. I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another, the Holy Spirit. He's like me. He'll take everything that's true of me and apply it to you and give it to you. And he'll teach you all the things that come from me and all the things that I've done and convince you of all of that. So the Holy Spirit will come in and do that. And then he says, now you need to live. And in your living, you're to love each other. And in your living, you're to witness of me. And that is going to bear fruit. This chapter of 15 is all about bearing fruit. And we'll see that it's bearing fruit in at least two ways. Complementary ways. One is the fruit that they will love one another as Jesus has loved them. And the other is the fruit that others will believe. Because you see, well let me read it. Jesus says, I'm the vine, true vine. And my father is indeed the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we get the picture. We were supposed to bear fruit, people. Uh, Verse 3. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Ah, abide in me. Now when he says that, the word abide means to live, to remain, to stay. This is your home. It says live in me. Stay there. I'm your life. I'm your home. Don't ever leave. Stay here. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus is saying, he's a vine, we're the branch. If we're going to bear fruit, fruit of love for one another, the fruit of others coming to faith, We need to stay in him. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. You can see these disciples. You know, they were great fishermen unless Jesus was around. They never caught any fish when Jesus was there until Jesus said, fish there. And he was always saying to them, apart from me, you can't even fish. You can't even do what you know how to do. You can't even do what you've been trained to do. You, You can't even be successful in that. So apart from me, you can't do anything at all. Verse 6, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. He said, listen, how do you know that you're living in me? How do you know that you're abiding in me? We are abiding in my love. What does that mean? It means you're obeying. Well, of course it does. If we know that he loves us and we're living in his love, why wouldn't we follow him? Why wouldn't we obey him? Uh, obedience is a fruit of this love. And this love is a fruit of abiding in him. But then he goes on. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends 
if you do what I command. No longer do I call you my servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you may love one another. Then verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he'll bear witness about me. You will also bear witness because you've seen me from the beginning. Have you ever read that passage, which I've just read really twice? And if you ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. So you ask a bunch of stuff for stuff, right? All kinds of things. Well, let me tell you, Jesus gives us that promise that we would bear fruit. If you're praying about fruit bearing, then he'll answer you. If you're praying about being a person who better loves, he'll answer you. If you pray about bearing fruit of your witness, he'll answer you. Because you see, when we love, we show ourselves to be his disciples. And when we show ourselves to be his disciples, then we're witnessing, we're bearing testimony of the truth of the gospel. And so he says, so pray like that. Pray for that. And, and he can tell us to pray for that because he's, he's the Lord. He's the Lord of our lives. He works in us. We can, he's the Lord of the catch. He's the one who changes people's hearts. And so he says, pray, people. So abide in my word and know it so that when you're asked of it, you can tell it. Know my word, abide in my word and my word in you so that you know what I command of you. Abide in my love so you will desire to obey me. You see, he's the Lord of the catch. So so what's life like now? The disciples would say, well, it's like this. It's sort of like Jesus is on the shore over here and, and we're in the boat over here. And we can't really see him. We don't really know that's him. But we're over here and then we realize even though he's over there, he's with us. And we can trust him. So we abide in his word and in his love and we obey him and we love one another and we witness of his goodness. And we pray. I remember conversation I had with uh, Jerry Bridges. Some of you know him, author, passed away a couple of years ago. had a conversation with him uh, days before he passed away and, and um, to pray for me. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, not doing well, but I don't think I'm going to die. <laughs> and I said, what gives you, you know, that impression? He said, well, I'll, there's still people on my list I'm praying for. Uh, to come to faith, and they haven't yet. 
So I'm thinking, I won't die till they do. That was his confidence in Jesus as the Lord of the catch. I, I don't know who they were. I don't know if they came to faith before he died or later or what. But that's the sense of it. When we really know that salvation is of the Lord and we trust him, then we can really pray. And when we really pray, we can really trust that he'll work. And as we know his word, we know what to pray and how to love. Now, uh, the disciples uh, come to Jesus and they get to the shore and there he is. He's been cooking and uh, he's been cooking fish and he has some bread and um, he, he, he comes to them and, and, and he says, here's some bread. Now, I'm speculating here, but I have this sense that they're thinking deja vu all over again. Because <laughs> the last time Jesus was giving out bread, it was that time when there were thousands of people who were hungry and they only had a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And I, I get this sense. I don't know if it's exactly the meaning of the text, but I think the point is true. That I sometimes think, but Lord, I'd like to have so little. And he scratches his head and he said, remember the day when that little boy just had a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread and he brought it to me. <laughs> and I gave it back and it fed thousands. Don't worry about that. I'm the Lord. Don't you get it? I'm the Lord. I don't even need your bread. I got my own. I don't even your fish. I've got my own. And here I'm giving it to you. Trust me. You look at your life and you go, but, but, but I look at my life. I desire to love, but... And then look at these on my list of whom I'm praying for to come to faith. Some of them may be children or parents or, spouse, or spouses or, 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 or dear friends. You're praying and you go, but what can I, how can I? And the Lord said, wrong focus. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. Now, abide in my word. I'm the Lord. Abide in my love. I'm the Lord. pray. And I'm thinking about this right now, I think it's been on my mind because I've been praying a great deal personally, just about vacation Bible school. I mean, I have to tell you that I don't think, even though we love it and it's fun and all of that, and it should be, I don't know till we get the glory that we're going to know the great things that God has done over the last few decades through this week of vacation Bible school. Many of you know I've shared before uh, that my mom got saved at a VBS. She happened on it when she was about 10 years old in her little neighborhood when you could walk neighborhoods and just walk into churches. Uh, and they were doing a little VBS. And somewhere between uh, singing and, and, and uh, gluing macaroni on a piece of paper in the shape of a cross, she got saved. She came home and said to my uh, Irish Catholic 
grandmother, Catherine Annie McKeague. She said, Mom, I, I just came to faith, believed in Jesus. And I won't tell you what my grandmother said, but it wasn't encouraging. But it stuck. And I always wondered over the years why my mom was always the vacation Bible school director every year. Because it was a real pain. Because we had some kids, John Keene, I remember. She had to kick him out every year. I don't know. It was just a problem. And uh, John, wherever you are. Uh, but, uh, uh, I, I, but, but, I, but I began to know because she realized the significance of such a thing. And you know, every year prior to VBS, we ask you to pray. Let me ask you to do this. As we prepare, abide in his word, trust him. Abide in his love, know it, and obey him. And then ask, mixing metaphors, the Lord of the harvest, to bring in the harvest. And then get in the habit of that for VBS and do it for our Sunday school. And then get in the habit of that for doing it for Sunday school for our yoggers. And getting, get in the habit of that for our college students. And get in the habit of that for everybody sitting around you. And then get in the habit of that for your neighbors. And get in the habit of that for the world. Let's pray, Father. Be gracious to us. Enable us to to trust you, to know you. Though we can't see you, we know that you're ruling and reigning. And you're ruling and reigning over all things for the sake of the church, for the sake of your people. And you will bring every single one of them to faith. And you'll bring every single one of them home. And so we pray that you would use us as we abide in you and you in us. And this we pray in Jesus' name.